Initializing now. You are listening to Intellectual Icebergs, August 17th, 2005, show number two. Today's topics are the war on drugs and BitTorrent. Here's your host, Jim Vance. Welcome back to Intellectual Icebergs. I'm your host, Jim Vance. In this first half of our second segment, we have a premier criminal defense litigator, author of Amendment 20 in Colorado, the medical marijuana legalization bill. Our special guest is Warren Edson. Welcome, Warren. Welcome, Jim. Thanks for inviting me. So we bring you here today to talk about a very specialized topic, something you're intimately familiar with and passionate about, the drug war. Let's start with the obvious question. What exactly do we mean when we're talking about the war on drugs? Well, basically, Jim, when we talk about the war on drugs, we're talking about prohibition, meaning the government's control over the distribution, sale, and use of certain substances. So the government protecting us from the drugs, or is this protecting us from ourselves? I guess a little bit of both, Jim. Okay. What's the justification? What's the what's the rationale behind protecting us from ourselves and from a substance? I think the government, or at least pro-prohibition people, would argue that there are essentially three main reasons for prohibition. The first reason is to protect us from ourselves and the addictive nature of the substances that have been prohibited. That would be both a psychological addiction, meaning you mentally needing and wanting to use a substance, as well as a physical addiction, meaning your body actually physically hurting if you aren't using the substance. Additionally, the government has health concerns and would allege that the substances that they're prohibiting have negative impact on you health-wise, both immediate impacts and long-term impacts. And then finally, it would be a financial concern, meaning the government would prefer that you spend your money on something else other than these prohibited substances. On, on that sort of topic, what are we talking in cost as far as what this war is costing us on an annual basis? We're talking about roughly $50 billion a, a year in cost, and that's for day-to-day police officers, some drug interdiction on part of the DEA, as well as the whole justice process, meaning both prosecutorial attorneys, defense attorneys, judges, and the whole industrial jail complex. I know that that number doesn't include some other factors such as the Coast Guard and other kind of drug interdiction forces. How long have we been fighting this war on substance. Well, Jim, starting with the Harrison Narcotics Act of 1914, that was pretty much the first time the U.S. federal government decided to get involved in controlling the possession and sale of narcotics. And specifically back then, they were aimed at cocaine and opiates. As you're probably aware, it expanded to alcohol prohibition in the late 1920s. Alcohol prohibition went away in the 30s, and we added on the Marijuana Tax Act, which taxed and regulated marijuana, essentially prohibiting it. 
That changed again starting in the late 60s, early 70s, first with the Johnson administration and then more formally with the Nixon administration creating an actual Controlled Substance Act. And it was the Nixon administration who coined the phrase war on drugs and started what we formally think of as a war on drugs. So is this more of a social backlash or was this a legitimate concern by the government since that was the free love era, the you know, post-Beatnik, hate Ashbury movement, that sort of thing? Was it more of a social backlash from that, or was it a, a legitimate, somebody raised concerns to the point that they had to launch a war on drugs? Well, I guess it would depend on how cynical you want to be. I, I'm sure the Nixon administration would say it, it was an actual concern about the well-being of the people, as well as it was an attempt to clarify how substances were being controlled. Um, we had a number of court cases in the late 60s which started to draw in question the federal government's authority to get involved in individual states' rights as well as municipal rights. And it was a way for the federal government to re-exert themselves. Of course, we are also dealing with a time where, as you were saying, we had, for lack of a better phrase, free love and hippies. And there was some concern, if not fear, in middle America of that which was different. And it allowed the federal government to get control over something they didn't previously have control over by playing off the public's fear of the unknown. At that time, the advance of science was literally creating new drugs, and we were seeing a social phenomenon where people were looking for new ways to experiment in that regard. So some 30 years after the end of the Nixon era, 35, 40 years of the, of the actual war on drugs, What's the effectiveness? What's the success from a perspective of what the government is trying to achieve? Statistically, there's very little to indicate that there has been success. We have increased use rates essentially across the board for each major drug and or controlled substance. That despite the fact that every year the budget for the war on drugs increases, every year the advertisements and alleged public education increases, we've seen no indication that the war on drugs is working. Has there ever been a period of quote-unquote success where numbers dropped or addiction rates were lower that you know of? Well, at least for use, I'm sure there's been some fluctuation that one could point to, but of course that would depend on each individual study as well as each individual drug, for lack of a better phrase, it goes through a popular phase or an unpopular phase. Over the grand course and scheme of the last 30, 40 years, though, you see increased use of all the major substances. Is this why the, the popularity for it or the support for it is waning in the general public? It certainly is a major reason and certainly a, a good grasping point, a good starting point. There are a number of other reasons that people are also concerned with the ongoing war on drugs. We kind of already touched on it, but obviously one reason is the straight-up cost to the average American taxpayer and the cost to our American government and the fact that the money we're spending on the war on drugs, on an ineffective war on drugs, could be going elsewhere. We're roughly looking at 70 to 80 percent of our current prison population are nonviolent drug offenders as opposed to violent criminals, and we're looking at roughly about $37,000 a year to incarcerate each of these individuals. Other reasons 
reasons why anti-drug war people support their cause or things like that. Mere fact that a drug is prohibited creates a black market. It actually creates crime, both in the fact that you now have suppliers who are criminals, but you also have average American citizens who, but for their personal use on their own time in their own home, would not be criminals and are made criminals just because of this law. We have increased, as we talked about, money spent on jails that could be better spent on treatment for individuals that do need drug treatment, as we've discussed before as well. Our country spends vastly more on incarceration than on effective treatment. And we've seen the fact that a substance is prohibited creates a vicious circle where the fact that it's prohibited but there's still demand increases the cost of that individual substance dramatically. As a prime example, if you talked with Metro Vice in Denver, they would tell you that the street cost of an average quarter ounce of marijuana, quality marijuana, um, they tell you is roughly $100 a quarter ounce. If one went to Jamaica where it's essentially decriminalized at this point, one would pay 5 to $10 for that same amount of marijuana. Prohibition creates a very unique situation in regards to a black market of higher paying jobs because there's been very little reduction in demand. It's blown the individual cost of these controlled substances through the roof. That creates a situation where your average kid growing up in middle class or lower class America will look around himself and see that he's got a couple job options. One job option is taking a minimum wage job or lower wage job and busting his hump at 40 hours a week for six bucks an hour. The other option becomes this created black market of jobs, i.e. selling crack cocaine, selling cocaine, selling marijuana. The reason this person might turn to that is because you can make 10, 50, 100 times the amount of money in the same amount of time because of this black market. If these substances were legalized, the price would be dramatically reduced. The $100 bag of marijuana would all of a sudden be a $10 bag of marijuana, and this kid wouldn't have the incentive to go sell marijuana because there wouldn't be the profit margin. So the black market it has created this weird phenomenon by the mere fact that it's illegal and that demand has, has not gone down. It's created a, a, a source of highly paid illicit jobs. Is there anything more that you can maybe key us in that would be a major factor? I mean, obviously you said that the drug usage is either possibly following the population growth line or it possibly even increasing. Is there some sort of social aspect that's making the war on drugs less popular? More than the fiscal, more than the obvious the lies that the government tells about, say, medical marijuana, marijuana equals bad, when it's obviously not the case. Is there any any other sort of social aspects that may be turning people off to it? Certainly, as we've seen the war on drugs drag on, we've seen it create an increasing distrust between the average American citizen and the authorities, whether those authorities are prosecutors, judges, or, or police officers or federal agents. In part, we've seen in support of the war on drugs, the government send out so much propaganda, which in fact, whether due to straight governmental misstatements or us becoming, with increasing scientific knowledge, aware that these misstatements were made, have created distrust between the government and the people. Meaning, the government says just say no. They equate all the drugs on the same level. Um, there's a general 
fear factor created by the government pro anti-drug propaganda machine and when the average kid goes out and maybe tries marijuana or something similar and it isn't that big a deal they don't die they don't become immediately addictive they then don't know what to trust from this message the government has sent them and additionally they're now afraid of authorities they're afraid of police officers a number of factors in that regard it obviously is a issue on a number of levels that's causing this to be epiphany to the general public that they're being scammed one might say you know personal opinion on that one i appreciate the information and the time thank you for your expertise you're welcome jim thanks thank for you. inviting me Aristotle is the first that we can quote as saying everything in moderation, nothing in excess. This piece of wisdom has survived the test of time and is far more profound than it seems. In a world where abstinence is idolized for the very reason that it is unnatural, we often forget that the problem isn't that we perform acts which are enjoyable, but that we perform them to excess. It isn't the acts which cause harm, but the extremes of excess and abstinence which ravage our lives. The creature called man, however, was not designed to maintain a steady state of pure moderation. Unwavering genetics results in extinction in a heart that beats in perfect rhythm is more prone to failure. We need our occasional primal scream and cathartic binge for the simple reason that we don't live in a world without lumps and surges and we must live our lives to compensate. As stated by Horace Porter, everything should be done in moderation, including moderation. It is a terrible mistake, however, to rely upon these lapses to solve our problems. If we do, then the small blips of excess used as a release valve become a perpetual slow leak that drains all of the energy and joy from our lives. This is a lesson which must be learned by the alcoholic and the perpetually angry alike. We must learn that even the moderation of moderation must be done in moderation. Welcome back to Intellectual Icebergs. For some strange reason, I am still your host, Jim Vance. With us today is the ever-divergent Robert Raplin, talking to us about a uh, topic that I'm actually somewhat familiar with and want to help expand everybody else's mind on, BitTorrent. Hi, Jim. How you doing? Not too bad. Yourself? I'm doing well. So, let's start with the obvious. What is BitTorrent? What is BitTorrent? BitTorrent is basically just yet another file transfer protocol. A little more than that, though, because it's currently the most efficient method for transferring large files across broad networks. So, unlike FTP, what's its? I mean, how does it work that it's it's better than something that's a staple like FTP or HTTP? Or oh, FTP is a fairly old protocol that essentially relies on a single server taking a file and transporting it to each individual person who wants it. BitTorrent actually improves on that by allowing everybody who wants a file to cooperate in transferring that file from one person to another. Specifically how BitTorrent works is that with FTP, you have a single person, let's say I have a book, and there's 10 people out there who want this book. I would have to make 10 copies of that book if it's a 100-page 
pages, I have to make a thousand copies and then hand deliver those to the various people. If we were to do a BitTorrent format to it, then what I would do is I would make a copy of the first page and hand that to the first person and then make a copy of the second page and hand that to the second person. And then after 10 copies, I've handed out 10 pages. But those people, instead of having one page apiece, they'll start making copies of whatever page they have and hand it out to the various people. So it's an exponential growth system, or is it more like a peer-to-peer system, or is it something completely new and different? It's not exactly peer-to-peer because peer-to-peer is completely unreliant upon any server. With BitTorrent, you actually have something called a tracker that sits on a server somewhere and keeps track of who has which pages of this particular file and which pages are more rare than other pages, so they're the ones that people most need to actually copy and hand around. And so it's not purely peer-to-peer. It's just entirely cooperative, where everybody who receives a file also cooperates to get copies of that file to other people. Interesting idea. So what then would be the drawbacks to having a system that's designed like this, where it's not peer-to-peer, but it's a shared cooperative program? Well, one of the primary problems with BitTorrent is that in order to make effective use of it, you actually have to be able to also serve pages. Now, in most cases, if you actually have your own personal IP address, like many of us do, then it's not a problem. All you have to do is have BitTorrent listening on one of the ports on your computer, and it'll be able to actually serve those pages out when people need them, when people request them. But if you happen to be behind network address translation gateway, then it's a little more complicated because then you don't really have access to a specific port. You have to do something called port forwarding, which basically says that if the gateway receives a request on a specific port, it needs to forward that request to a specific computer behind it. Now, obviously, if you have 10 people behind a network address translation gateway, then they all can't do this BitTorrent type of transfer because you can't forward the same port to all 10 people. Now, the specific problem with the protocol will go away if they ever implement IP version 6, but for the time being, they would need to actually alter the implementation of a NAT firewall in order to accommodate these. Okay. Is there any other major issues with it as far as you know, hunting down particular files? What if somebody shuts off their computer? They're obviously killing that cooperative part of the system. Oh, no. It's set up specifically so that any person can quit, and as long as there's at least one person sitting out there who has a full copy of the file, then anybody who attaches to what's called the swarm can eventually receive all of the file. And the swarm being... The swarm is the collection of people who are attempting to receive or are serving a specific file. If, for instance, if you're trying to download a copy of a program and you've got 10 other people who are also trying to download it, you're receiving some parts from them, they're receiving some parts from you, you're getting some from the primary server, and you're all communicating with this tracker program to figure out who needs what pieces. This is a fairly chaotic system of interaction between all of the people, even if it's a thousand or ten thousand people trying to receive this file, you're still interacting with a significant portion of those. And this loose agglomeration of various people sending and receiving pieces of the file is called a swarm. 
Okay. So, since it's not exactly a peer-to-peer, but it obviously relies on a cooperative effort, is this the reason that media sources and, and that sort of thing, studios, are all kind of wigged out by this because they're not able to track downloads and uploads the way they did with, say, Napster and, and Gaza and that sort of thing? Oh, no. The, the media is really pissed off at the existence of BitTorrent simply because it's the most efficient way of transferring a piece of information from one place to another. More specifically, it's the most efficient way of transporting a very large chunk of information, for instance, a song or a movie, from one place to another. It also allows people to hand out a movie or a song without having to replicate it and use a hundred times the song size and bandwidth in order to pass it to a hundred people. You have to use something more in the realm of 10% of that type of bandwidth in order to distribute to the people. So it's a high efficiency file sharing system, which by definition would freak them out because then people would have a much easier time getting something that they don't want to share. Oh yeah. They were unhappy with VHS and Betamax when they originally came out because people could record videos and hand them out to other people. They had problems with regular cassette tapes when those originally came out. They had problems with player pianos when they came out. Obviously they had issues with MP3s and CDs. Every time a new form of technology comes out that makes the exchange of information easier, the media goes into a tizzy because they're afraid that someone's going to use that to transfer a song or a movie. And they do do this. It shouldn't surprise anyone. Does the does BitTorrent in any way, shape, or form change the legality with the whole concept that to upload is illegal, to download is not, or does it still fall into that same domain? No, it really has no effect on that whatsoever. If you have a piece of music, whether you've paid for your right to listen to it, to own a copy of it or not, giving it to another person is illegal. Making a copy of it to hand to another person, you're violating copyright because you do not have the right to make a copy of that song or movie. It really doesn't matter. The medium that you use to transfer it, it could be FTP, it could be BitTorrent, it could be SneakerNet, it could be paper airplane. It really doesn't matter. It's the actual act of making the copy and transferring it to someone else that is illegal. So if this isn't replacing, say, Napster or the peer-to-peers, this is not really intended to do that, what potential applications does BitTorrent have for the general public, corporate environments, that sort of thing? BitTorrent has the ability to significantly decrease the bandwidth load of anybody who is attempting to serve large files. Now, by large files, there's a minimum file size at which BitTorrent becomes less efficient simply because of the information that has to be passed around by the tracker. But anybody who's attempting to serve computer programs right now, they're in the habit of having 15, 20, 100 different people mirroring a computer program. And if you want to download it, you just pick one that's like close to you or that you recognize or whatever. With BitTorrent, you'd be able to serve them all from the same place and not have to worry about your bandwidth requirements. For instance, for an organization like Flickr that stores lots of large images, they might be able to make use of it. For groups like Creative Commons, that is a directory for large amounts of audio media, or GarageBand, which actually does have a large repository of MP3 music files, which average at about 3 megabytes apiece. All of these would be excellent opportunities to make use of BitTorrent as a protocol. But the problem with this being that right now, if you want to actually receive a BitTorrent file, you have to receive the torrent file, 
which has all of the instructions for downloading and then pass that to a separate program and have that program actually receive the file. If it were built into our browsers, then it would be about as automatic a process as downloading any other file. Is that something that is a potential add-on in the world and development of BitTorrent that you can see ever happening? I sure hope so. It's the trend for browsers to incorporate very new forms of file transfer and imaging and rendering techniques as they become available. It's just been a little bit behind in incorporating BitTorrent because of the open port issue. In fact, you have to open a port as a server. Okay. So now to, to briefly revisit the whole idea of where this is efficient, can corporations now start to share things like, say, databases and that sort of thing across remote hubs, you know, offices that need them that it's just too big to FTP or takes too long and other offices need to share? Is that a possibility for them? Oh, absolutely. If they would invest in a very small amount of infrastructure and training for the people who actually receive these files, then yeah, they could certainly use that. And again, any company that distributes distributes large files, for instance, antivirus. It would make the most sense to distribute the latest antivirus definitions by BitTorrent. They'll download much more quickly and they'll save a lot of bandwidth on the sender side. Interesting idea. So for personal use, what would be a good application or good hypothetical use for this? Well, for individuals, that's really highly dependent on the individual. Most people don't actually produce large audio files or video files. And if they do, they usually don't have a huge audience who actually wants them. And those are a couple of things that BitTorrent relies upon. Anything below about a quarter of a megabyte in size isn't really worth distributing via BitTorrent. And if you have fewer than 10 people trying to receive it at any particular time, if your receivership never goes above three people at a time, then there's no efficiency in BitTorrent in the first place. So the basic theory being then intellectual icebergs is encouraging people to BitTorrent intellectual icebergs. Oh, absolutely. Wonderful idea. Yes, with the release of this one, I'm hoping to actually start distributing our files via BitTorrent, and we'll just see how it goes. Wonderful idea. I like that. I think with that, we have a pretty good synopsis of what BitTorrent's all about. Thank you, Rob. Appreciate your time. Thank you, Jim. Intellectual Icebergs is produced by Robert and Tiffany Rappelin. The music for the credits is Speaking in Electronic Tongues by Synthetic Movements. The music for the first segment is The Lottery in Babylon by Disparition. The music for the interlude is Oasis Promenade by Neon McCall. The music for the second segment is The Eviction by Zero Depth. The makers of Intellectual Icebergs would like to remind you not to taunt the angry little flame. Please visit us at www.intellectualicebergs.org. Intellectual Icebergs is released under a Creative Commons license and is an Onk Infinity production.